inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. A brain on a chip. That is what we are going to be talking about today on Radio Cade. And today on the phone I have is my guest, Jack Kendall. Welcome, Jack. Hey, how are you? So, Jack, normally how we start this is if you could just tell the listeners what the technology is that you're working on and what it does, and we'll talk later about the applications and the business model. So just tell us what is it that you're working on and what does it do? Yeah, we're uh, building a new type of processor for artificial intelligence that's inspired by the brain. Okay. So let me ask a clarifying question. Just for listeners who sort of aren't familiar with the AI world or the very concept of artificial intelligence, what's a useful thumbnail description of artificial intelligence? So AI powers a lot of things these days. I'm sure you've all heard of Siri. So Siri is powered by a type of artificial intelligence called neural networks. Google's reverse image search, a lot of really powerful recommendation engines, just like in Amazon and Netflix that help you find similar products also use AI. So AI is sort of the direction the IT industry is going in terms of making everything easier to use. Is that more or less fair? Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to come back later in the show and talk about what you're doing with Rain and the overall business model. But first, I wanted to get some information about you. You know, what were you like as a kid? Where did you grow up? That sort of stuff. And then maybe if you want to share sort of about your formal education before uh, getting into your current business. So uh, let's start. Where, where are you from and how would you describe yourself or how would others have described you as a kid? So I grew up in a small town called Bellevue, Florida. It's about an hour south of Gainesville. There's a lot of cows and horses there. Were either of your parents in a technical field or information technology or anything like that? Uh, no, my dad was a mason. He actually started his own business doing masonry, uh, and that sort of inspired me to create my own business as well. But he had a lot of tools in his garage, and I spent a lot of time as a kid building things and playing in the garage. And you said that one of your role models was Steve Irwin, the, the crocodile hunter, is that correct? <laughs> Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, absolutely. I was a huge fan of Steve Irwin. So between masonry and hunting for crocodiles was sort of your, that was your zone, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good description. How old were you when you first got interested in the brain? When did that sort of jump out as a subject matter or a concept that you wanted to know more about? Um, it's kind of funny. Most of my life, I was interested in things like physics and chemistry, rigorous kind of deep science fields. Um, it wasn't until I was pretty far into college that I really got interested in the brain and sort of wanted to apply the way of thinking of engineering and physics to understanding the brain. So probably about when I was around 21, 22 years old. So what did you start out studying in college? Were you like a physics major or an engineering major? Yeah, I majored in chemical engineering and physics. Okay. And so was it sort of a breakthrough moment in a particular class or with a particular instructor in which you started getting curious about the brain or did this come from some other influence? So a good friend of mine was studying neuroscience and I had always been passively interested in the brain, but it wasn't until I read a book by somebody named Jeff Hawkins, actually the inventor of the Palm Pilot called On Intelligence, that I really got really, really interested in the brain. And what time frame are we talking about, Jack, roughly? 
Yeah, this was now about six years ago. Six years ago, okay. So neuroscience is one of those fields that has really changed or just continues to change very, very rapidly. Is it a little bit disorienting being in a field that seems to be moving at, at such a fast clip in terms of what we know about the brain now is sort of multiples what we knew even probably six or seven years ago? Yeah, when I first started learning about the brain, there was so much information. You didn't even really know where to start. As I've studied it more and more over the years, things are beginning to make more sense. And you can see that there's this broad framework that's emerging to understand the brain. So things are making a lot more sense now. And I think that we're actually pretty close to a cohesive understanding of the brain. So from the outside, people who are not specialists in artificial intelligence, you seem to get one of two reactions, either this techno-enthusiasm for this is going to make everything easier and the world's going to be great because of AI. And and then on the other hand, you can sort of get this techno-phobia or tech dystopia where AI is going to take over everyone's job and it's going to dehumanize and depersonalize. So knowing what you do about the actual development of AI, and are, are we closer to one of those two poles than the other one? Or is, is it like most things that are just kind of right in the middle? This is a point at which really we have a choice collectively about how we use these technologies. There are many, many, many applications of AI that have the potential to make human life much better, especially in healthcare and preventing diseases and creating new cures for things like cancer. But at the same time, facial recognition, especially in mass surveillance, have the potential to create a somewhat dystopian type reality that we may live in. So I think it really depends on what we do right now to prepare for the advent of true real AI. So you started a company, Rain Neuromorphics. First thing, tell me about the, the name itself, Rain Neuromorphics. What does that signify? So Rain, it's a play on sort of our core technology, which we're very brain inspired. We try and overcome some of the scaling problems with other AI chips by making these random networks. So RAIN stands for Random Artificial Intelligence Networks. And then neuromorphics is a combination of neuro, which means brain, and morphic means in the shape of. So we're building things that are in the shape of the brain. So Jack, for lay people, how would you explain, I guess, the competitive advantage of the type of work you're doing versus other folks working on AI? Basically, we can build larger networks larger brains than any of our competitors and, and train them faster. So right now, a big problem with neural networks is that it's very difficult to train them because the amount of time that it takes to train scales as you make the network larger and larger. Right now, that scaling is very poor, but we have uh, an architecture that scales more like the brain does. So it, it's much better in terms of as you make the network larger and more powerful, it still is easy to train. And is there something distinctive about the type of network that is explainable that gives you this advantage? In conventional architectures, what you see a lot is you see basically in AI right now, it's all about neural networks and in particular, something called deep neural networks. And these are computational algorithms that work in a way that we think is really similar to what the brain is doing. And they're powerful as a function of the number of neurons that you can really fit into the network. And so conventional algorithms and hardware, you create these really dense, they call them fully connected networks. So every neuron in a layer is connected to every other neuron in another layer. But the brain isn't like this. The brain doesn't have these fully connected grid-like networks. 
In the brain, things are very sparsely connected. So a neuron might only connect to maybe less than 1% of its neighbors. So this is called sparse connectivity. It's really hard to implement in hardware, but we have found a way to implement this sparsity in hardware, and that is what allows us to scale. What are the applications of RAIN neuromorphics, and, and who are your clients, and what, what are you working on for applications? Yeah, so what we want to do is replace a lot of the compute devices that companies like Google and Amazon are using right now for their AI. Most people right now are using graphics processing units or GPUs because GPUs were the best solution that already existed when neural networks became really popular. So what we're trying to do is replace a lot of those devices with special purpose hardware for neural networks for very large companies that do a lot of AI. Are you licensing this for someone else or do you own the patent to this? Yeah, so the University of Florida, it was developed at UF. So UF owns the patent and we have a full exclusive license from UF. And is the idea to do sort of a, a sub-license to these other companies or, or to get acquired by them? Or what is sort of your thinking in terms of... Uh... We want to build chips. Yeah. Okay. So we want to really build the chips and sell them to the end user. Hmm. Okay. Um, how big is your company now, Jack? We're pretty small. We're still an early stage company. We just recently raised our seed round. So we're hiring pretty fast right now, but right now we're at about five people. So as you set out to explain this technology to your clients or potential clients, was it a bit frustrating? Did you have people not quite get it? Or maybe they understood how the technology worked, but they didn't really see the value proposition in the application? Or has this been one and done, you make your pitch and they sign up? At first, people were skeptical. Um, we're doing something that's very different from traditional silicon design, traditional processor design. So they should have been skeptical. But pretty rapidly, we built up a very good list of people who really know the technology very deeply and can vouch for it. And once we had some big name people that were on board, convincing others became much, much easier. So you talked about one sort of very useful, quote, bad experience you had in the sense that apparently you were applying for a grant and one of the reviewers said <laughs> they liked the idea, but you didn't have any useful learning algorithms and, and it was essentially yeah. like a brain that didn't know how to learn. And you said yeah. you took that rejection pretty hard, but it sounded like out of that rejection came something good. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So I remember this very well. I was doing research at UF under Professor Dr. Juan Nino at the time, and he's a material science professor. And this is where I came up with the idea, and we submitted the patent, and we needed funding. So we were applying to all these grants, and it was multiple rejections in a row, and that is kind of demoralizing. And I really did take the feedback from the reviewers close to heart. And one of the things that was obvious was that this was really just a framework architecture. We didn't have any algorithms for it. So it was like we had built this hardware, but there was no software for it to run. So after I got that feedback, I was like, all right, this is not going to go anywhere unless I can build really the software for it. And so I became kind of obsessed with this problem and really just thought hard and long enough that I came up with something that worked. And after that, that's when things really started to take off. So this brings up an interesting question, because for a lot of inventors and entrepreneurs, there's a certain amount of criticism that you kind of have to ignore, right? Because if you took into account every piece of criticism, you just stop. But at the same time, there's criticism you have to pay attention to, because otherwise you're never really going to progress. Was there something about this way this advice or criticism was delivered that you realized, oh, this is the type of stuff I need to listen to and, and not ignore? Yeah, this has happened a few times. 
but it's always the criticism that makes you deeply uncomfortable because you know that it's true. I see. The things that you know is irrelevant and doesn't do anything to you emotionally, that's usually the type of criticism that you can ignore. Yeah. But the ones that really make you think and question what you're doing, that's the criticism you have to pay attention to. Right. Because they've gotten at a root problem that you, you acknowledge, you just didn't want to fully acknowledge, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. I had another guest recently. Uh, I asked for advice and he said, always tell yourself the truth. Because uh, yep. if you don't, you'll say along believing all, all of your good press, as they say. So what are your immediate next steps, Jack, aside from cutting a huge deal with Google or Apple or something? Or are there <laughs> immediate hurdles that you're trying to overcome, either regulatory hurdles or financial hurdles or whatnot? There's not much regulation that we've run into just yet. Financially, we're, we're doing okay right now. So our main challenge is actually putting out our alpha chip. So we're scheduled to have that out in about nine to 12 months. We're starting our design process. We're hiring all the engineers that we need to do that. But it's going to be a long journey, but we think it'll be worth it. And does Rain have a website that people can go to if they're looking for more information? Or uh, We're actually in the process of setting that up right now. We have a landing page. It's rain-neuromorphics.com. We'll have some more stuff up there very soon. Well, great, Jack. Thank you very much for joining us today. We look forward, hopefully, to getting updates and then having you back on the show. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Heartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida, for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. <laughs>